0: Our Catholic schools exist to evangelize and to make saints. We focus a lot on making leaders, but it's great if our schools produce great leaders if they're ethical leaders and people of faith, leading with faith.
1: Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Archbishop Corde from San Francisco. So welcome, Your Excellency, to our show.
0: Thank you. Glad well, to be with you.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for being with us. And, uh, you know, you've been such a heroic leader, I think, within the uh, church in the United States, uh, and I think an inspiration for many, uh, for a lot of your your teachings, your willingness to proclaim the gospel. Uh, in season and out of season, to those who want to listen, to those who don't. And we are all just want to thank you so much for all you've done. Uh, Today, uh, we want to talk about a handful of things, partly to do with how Catholics can engage in our contemporary society, how Catholics can help lead other Catholics to come to know Jesus Christ and follow him. But one of the things I really want to highlight that I know you're going to be giving a talk at the university Uh, For its convocation, I want to talk a little bit about how Catholic education is central to the life of the church. That, in some ways, right, these cultural issues we talk about, these societal issues, these familial issues, aren't these, these require, in a way, a, a transformation of the human person. They require kind of an education. So, could you say a little bit about why Catholic education is important? to the life of the church
0: the church sees education in the literal sense of the word right educare to lead out or lead out from so it's it's helping the person develop and grow into the person god created the person to be so it requires it's that's why we look at it as an education of the whole person yeah. the intellectual part but also the, primarily the spiritual mm-hmm. and moral The social, this is kind of the vision of our Catholic social teaching about the integration of the human person is not just a physical being, but a social and spiritual being as well. So that sort of formation and helping them grow in in the virtues and that sense of wonder to explore the mysteries of the universe, Mm -hmm. explore the truths from revelation is helps form the person in well in the path of holiness. And that's why the church is here to help us lead. Uh, Grow in the path of holiness so we can know Christ better and be saved.
1: Yeah, that's uh, so beautifully put. You know, I'm reminded that Pope Benedict XVI in 2008, when he visited the United States, uh, he gave a talk on Catholic education at, uh, I think it was at CUA on um, Catholic University of America in 2008. I think it was like in April. I kind of remember it. I remember when he, I remember reading the talk afterwards. And I think the way he expressed it, let me make sure I have it here with the quote because I really want to get it right, but this is what he said at the beginning, quote, first and foremost, every Catholic educational institution is a place to encounter the living God who in Jesus Christ reveals his transforming love and truth. And that encounter with the living God who reveals in Jesus Christ his transforming love and truth. And I think that's what in my mind, when we look at kind of society today, when we look at families, when we look at individuals who struggle, perhaps with hopelessness or despair, uh, we see the importance of offering and recovering that transforming love and truth that we see in Jesus Christ. So could you maybe kind of unpack that a little bit about how that encounter with God in Jesus Christ is meant to be at the center of Catholic education?
0: Certainly that was a perennial theme of Pope Benedict uh, and Cardinal Ratzinger. His central theme was it's our faith is an encounter with the living person of Jesus Christ. It's not simply professing a set of doctrines. And so this one of the most brilliant theologians (laughs) certainly of our time, maybe in the history of the church sees that it's, it's more than that. It's all to lead us to this encounter. It's all about encounter because God created us for communion. Uh, So we see, why do we see so much to, depression and anxiety these days, rise in suicide, especially among young people, because of the isolation, right? That's contrary to how God created us to be. He created us for communion. So we have to, in our Catholic schools, and our whole effort of Catholic education, uh, help our young people develop the capacity for love to understand what love really is, giving sacrificing of oneself for the good of another, right? So they they have a greater capacity to receive and share God's love because love is what makes communion possible. When we experience communion as a church, it leads us more deeply into our communion with Christ.
1: Yes, that is so it's it's and, and I think what you what you highlight there is that the communion we're seeking is not merely a social communion. It is that. We do want to be part of a herd. We want to be accepted. We want to have families that hear us, that listen to us, you know, that we, with, with whom we can share our pains and our struggles and our joys. That's so important to have that. But the communion that really needs to be at the source of that is this communion with God, right? It's really God that, because no human community will ever satisfy my deepest longings. Uh, even our attempts at expressing love, with those in our families or those in our communities, those in our churches, always fall short of the love we want to communicate. And so when we can announce God's love, it's not my love for you in which you can hope, but it's really God's love for you. And then I can begin to recognize that I'm lovable, not because I'm particularly perfect or anything. I'm lovable because God loves
0: me. And that Mm -hmm. becomes then the source of a new communion. And I think that's really a beautiful hope. God definitely has to be at the center if our communion is going to be right. Yes, it's beyond the social. The social is sort of a means to lead us more deeply into the spiritual. Mm-hmm. But God has to be at the center. Yeah. If he's not, then the communion that is the community will veer off course. So all we have to do is think about atheistic regimes in our own time and in the last yeah. century, how oppressive they were, how dehumanizing they were because God was put to the side. And a human community by itself can't do that. Uh, yeah. It can only do so when God's at the center and, and we're open to the grace he gives us to create that kind of health, healthy, life-giving community.
1: Yeah. Augustine in The City of God says at one point that The only genuine peace in which we can thrive is the peace that God gives, the peace that God gives that allows the restoration of true love. He says, otherwise, we tend to impose counterfeit peace, which he was thinking of, especially saying the Roman government or the Roman Empire, which had the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But he said, actually, that was just the imposition of will. (laughs) But in a way, he says, each of us, when we try to make earthly peace, even peace in our jobs or in our communities, we're just imposing our will upon others trying to control the situation and that becomes then a counterfeit piece and i think certainly the atheistic communist regimes did that they were very social right yes. they they subordinated the individual to the community but really to the destruction of both yes because they rejected uh you know that just becomes an a counterfeit uh, piece not the true communion uh, that really has to be you know, not only born from God, but born from right, Jesus's blood, right? That there's something in us that has to die in order to be able to yes. be come somehow in proper relation to our neighbor.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quintessentially utilitarian those societies, right? As John Paul would put it, the person becomes a means to the end. In this case, the end being the state and means of production. Yes,
1: so. The talk that you're giving is called uh, the three pillars of Catholic education. Yes. So, could you say a little bit about what those three pillars are, and maybe even how did you how did you come about discovering them in your own educational work, and obviously your work as a bishop and archbishop?
0: This is my own personal analysis of it. When I think about uh, having to do as a bishop, you know, we have to work a lot in the world of education, and when I where I see there where education is strong and where it's weak, um, what the deficits are. First of all, I, I would say it's, uh, we know from, as Catholics that to understand truth, faith and reason need to work together. So Pope John Paul gave us that beautiful encyclical. we learned so much from uh, Cardinal Rosker, later Pope Benedict as well about this, that both are necessary, making their own unique contribution and also sort of serving as a check on the other so it doesn't go off into an extreme or whether that's, um, pure fideism or uh, pure reason that ends up into irrationality, which is what we're seeing now. So both need to work together to, to apprehend the truth, the natural truth and reveal truth. So we, we see this digression in the enlightenment that it privatized faith and reason alone was the key to accessing the truth. But now, in the postmodern world, now reason has been sidelined. That's why there's so much irrationality in the world today things that are utterly unreasonable, that are clearly contrary to perceived reality, right? And it's all a pure will to power now. So, without them working together, they both eventually disappear, yeah. and we're left unable to understand any truth. And that's what we're seeing now. People are not able to understand even simple truths, but it's all purely based on on emotion and um, imposing my will on the reality.
1: Yeah, it, I remember back in the 90s, Cardinal Schoenborn, who was the editor of the Catechism, he was actually, maybe it was around 2000, he was speaking uh, early on in some of, he visited Ave Maria, and he, he said that not only do we need faith and reason or fetus at ratio he said especially we need to have faith and reason in science or fetus at ratio at scientia and i think that obviously it's included in what you're saying but i think just to make it even more explicit is that a lot of people kind of have this latent suspicion that somehow faith and science are contradictory uh, and this is simply just not true but it needs to be recovered that science our investigation of the natural world, whether or not that's biology or physics or all these other different ways of investigating the world, and then reason by which we reflect upon the nature of the human person, and then theology by which we look at all of that in light of God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, so that these build upon one another and are not in competition with one another. Uh, But I think it's so common that we want to highlight that People suspect them to be different. And the problem is when you try to have a whole educational system based upon science alone, where's the morality, Mm -hmm. right? How do you, and even why should we bother doing science, right? What's the meaning of life? Uh, So I don't know if you could say uh, like words or say something about some of that aspect about faith and reason today uh, and the importance both for attending to maybe science, but also the need to, that science comes in a way from faith and points to something more than itself. Certainly
0: um, we have so many myths we have to dispel. This is one of the hardest ones to dispel. Then there may be some Christians in certain denominational traditions that are anti-science. So I don't think there are maybe some call it into question, but for the most part, we who are Christian don't, we're not saying our religion is against science. It's only some in the scientific community yes. who are saying that there's this opposition between religion and science. I love to say, with only a little bit of exaggeration, as Catholics, of course, we like science. We invented it. Yes, yes. <laughs> right, yes. in the Middle mm-hmm. Ages, the first the, the research in the monastery, then the universities have founded they advanced and basically defined the scientific method of inquiry that we have today, which is why the church has produced so many great scientists. So let us remember the heliocentric theory of the solar system was not conceived of by Galileo but by Copernicus, mm-hmm. who was a cleric yes and did yes. not get in trouble with the church yes so and the Jesuit astronomers are interested in this. The Pope was interested in it at the time. So there's as so often happens much more complexities there. Uh, George LeMate, the one who invented the Big Bang theory, you know, was a Belgian priest. Yes. So, uh, so many other uh, Gregor Mendel and uh, so many brilliant scientists with breakthrough discoveries in the field of science. So, why would we be opposed to science? The other thing is that God is the design. He's the great artist, the designer. You know, there's has to be a consistency in design. God created the universe. God revealed the the hidden truth to us through his son, Jesus Christ, that comes through scriptures and tradition, God wouldn't put an opposition between that. Yeah. Um, so we're sometimes accused of being against science because we believe in ethical restraints. There's no ethical restraint. Where does it stop? Would it be legitimate to do experiment on human beings? You know, if that's, that's something, still, thank God, I think most people would shudder in horror at the thought of, but there have to be ethical restraints we went through this a lot with the debate over the stem cell research right and so again another myth people say oh the catholic church is opposed to stem 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 cell research and treatment and it could cure so many of these well no it's the embryonic research work. And as a matter of fact, there haven't been any cures to come from that after decades of research. Yes. The cures come from uh, adult stem cells and other non-embryonic stem cells mm. that have actually been successful in treatment. So there's always these uh, these distinctions we have to make. So it is it is a very challenging myth to dispel, but we have to dispel it. And the place to start is in our Catholic educational system.
1: Well, that's, that's so well put. And I really appreciate that sense of uh, that this profound harmony right between faith and reason and science, uh, and that each has its appropriate scope. I, I remember, I think somebody had, you know, you have uh, the STEM math, right? Or science, yes. technology, uh, engineering, and math, yes. and then somebody added to it. Well, we should have the stream exactly. Right? Uh, yes. Science, technology, religion, yes. Engineering, arts, yes, and yes. Uh, math because we need to have a reason mm-hmm. to employ yes. these technological tools and modes of understanding the world and that requires something higher than ourselves yes. i love it psalm uh, 19 the heavens are telling the glory of yes. god it's more interesting to study the heavens <laughs> when i think when i can kind of see that there's a kind of wonder and intelligibility in them yeah. uh, that's not just there's an order into which i am invited to like live mm-hmm. and join into as opposed to simply order and meaning that i create
0: yes which exactly it's an order that i call to discover yeah. and understand mm-hmm. not create and impose
1: yeah yeah and and then it begins it's almost similar then to the moral order just yes. as there's a yes uh, a scientific order and an inte- order of intelligibility that intelligibility also includes persons it includes goodness it includes morality so yes. we can begin to discover that and yeah. and then see how faith fulfills that so, well, just to make sure that we get to the next
0: two yeah, points, no, what's uh, your you next pillar? <laughs> okay, I already alluded to it earlier. It's, um, I spoke about education of the whole person. So it's formation and virtue. Mm. Our Catholic schools exist to evangelize yeah. and to make saints, basically. We focus a lot on making leaders, but it's great if our schools produce great leaders if they're ethical leaders and people of faith, leading with faith as the basis of their their values so forming them in virtue because virtue is what leads us down the path of holy holy the church finds holiness as heroic virtue so one has to first acquire a basic uh, say a basic level of virtue in order to then continue to grow and be be more and more self-giving so i mentioned about humility as you know, the saints tell us this humility is the first virtue to open the door to all of the others. And here we're going against the sense of entitlement that's just so rampant in society today. And people are always thinking about what I'm going to get out of it, thinking about me first, which is opposite of love. Mm-hmm. If you're living opposite of love, you're going to be isolated and very lonely. Yeah. Uh, so, love is. Willing as Saint Thomas tells us, willing the good of the other, and then acting on that, which requires a, a day, you mentioned that earlier about that part of us has to die mm-hmm. in order for that to happen. But then God then can work his grace can work in us so we can grow and to be truly holy people who I love to give this etymology of uh in the church, you know, in, in our prayers, holy and blessed are pretty much synonymous. We now have in the canonical process distinction between beatification and canonization. But in the prayers, they're synonymous. So sanctus and beatus in Latin. Sanctus means holy, Mm. beatus literally means happy. So to be holy means to be someone who's truly happy, which is what God created us for, to be happy Mm -hmm. with him. Which is why the second virtue of chastity basically means loving and the way that is proper to love, true love, respecting the integrity and dignity of the other person, never using that person as a means to my own end. So, um, forming them in those virtues. And then the third one would be the, just the whole sacramental worldview, uh, that Mm. the Catholic mind, right. It's all based on the incarnation, that the invisible becomes visible through the physical. So the whole sacramental system, the incarnation is that when, yes. when the physical person of Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth, we were seeing a physical body, but beyond the body to God, this is God incarnate. So God comes to us this way in the, in this sacramental way. So we, we can see physical reality mediating a spiritual reality that's beyond itself. And that's why this whole question of marriage is so important that again, we get okay. this from. St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body, the image of God, really if you go deep into the text, it's the man and woman, their complementarity and the covenant of marriage, that is the image of God. Because when God made human creation, God wanted to make an image of himself. Well, God is a communion of persons, a life-giving communion of persons. The Father, all he is and has, gives to the Son and the Son to the Father. Their love sends forth the Holy Spirit that draws us into the communion of that love. So he had to make divide his human creation, which is a sense of taking Adam's rib. rib. It means taking a side away, splitting him in half. So then he could come back together in a comprehensive, conjugal, life-giving union this is uh, one of the strongest examples of how this sacramental reality works that marriage mediates this whole mystery of helping us understand who god is and what our relationship is like with him
1: yeah and i think it's also an interesting example because somehow you can't see marriage from the outside and what i mean it, it really matters what kind of what kind of in a way glasses you have on mm-hmm. if you only see the world through material lenses and only through empirical lenses or maybe only kind of scientific lenses then you'll just look at marriage as somewhat of an evolutionary adaptation which can be modified mm-hmm. you know at will but You can also begin to see it with a philosophical view, which is to say, wait a second, this is somehow part of the human being is that we don't merely mate and copulate like animals, but we actually give ourselves freely in rituals, promises before others, our families, our societies, and through some notion of religion which is pretty much you know like and then in the christian faith we begin to see that god somehow cares about our lives
0: Mm -hmm. yes
1: he cares about our lives and therefore he uses right the example between a man and a woman to show christ's love for the church Mm -hmm. so the love between a man and a woman from the outside can look just like an evolutionary adaptation from a philosophical point of view it looks like actually a uniquely free, rational, loving act. But then from the light of faith, we begin to see, wait a second, this is part of the very fabric of creation, right? Yes. In Genesis one and two in Genesis two, there's basically a wedding. So if you want to understand creation, you have to understand marriage and we of course don't live it out very well. And most societies don't really understand it very well, but that's the reality. That God's calling us back to. And in Jesus Christ, He gives us the freedom to, in a certain sense, that He's already the perfect bridegroom. You know, that our marriages don't have to earn love, they get to receive love Mm -hmm. from God's gift. And Mm -hmm. we can kind of, as broken spouses and imperfect spouses, can kind of rest in the side of Jesus. We get to go back, in a way, as Eve did, into the side of Adam, where Mm -hmm. we get to rest in, right, the wounded side of jesus from which the sacraments flow yeah and this is just this is like in a way the real vision but i always find it's like when you can invite people into discovering this is this is who you are you're much more interesting in a way than you think you
0: are mm-hmm. so uh yeah that wisdom we have from the fathers of the church about the wounded side of christ from which the blood and water flowed it was creating the church as God created Eve from Adam's side so God Mm -hmm. creates a bride for his son Christ Mm -hmm. and of course the water and the blood symbolizing baptism and the Eucharist and you know Fulton Sheen is a little bold but he even refers to the blood and water that flowed from Christ's side as a seminal fluid Mm-hmm. then the church as yeah. his bride and our mother receives that yeah. and generates mm-hmm. new life for god's kingdom through yeah. the sacraments and the handing on of the faith that he entrusted the deposit of faith to the church so all of that you mentioned about the the wedding in chapter two of genesis it reminded me of that uh, splendorous cathedral of monreale outside of palermo uh, it's all mosaics above highlighting all the history of salvation beginning with creation mm-hmm. and there's one scene in there where god is holds eve by the hand and is presenting her to adam but then when we understand this with this reading the scriptures sacramentally this is god presenting the church to mm-hmm. his son jesus christ That's for crazy. that that communion of life and love yeah. which is what god seeks for us
1: it's one of my favorite icons especially popular in the east is that when jesus descends into hell he grabs adam and eve by the hand and he pulls us out and that's what we want to remember the church is that we are somewhat in this world that's confused confusing we're confused we're confusing and yet god reaches down and lifts us out and i think this whole emphasis on this so first we have faith and reason then we have the education of the whole person Mm -hmm. and then we have the sacramental worldview when we do that we really begin to discover this recovery of meaning and I was, I was thinking about this as we used to talk about the me generation, mm-hmm. I think uh, young people today might call it the me generation. <laughs> it just, people are somewhat bored and uninterested and recovering this aspect of Catholic education really makes the world just more exciting and, yes. and, and a, a richer place in which to dwell. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's such good news. So we're going to take a break, uh, and then when we come back, I think we're going to shift gears a little bit to kind of consider how is it that this educational foundation, and something, of course, that's not limited to the young, we all want to grow in these Mm -hmm. educational um, habits and virtues and allow ourselves to be formed intellectually, uh, volitionally, morally, personally, but also how then does this kind of shape our engagement, Catholics' engagement in the political world in our kind of larger societal
0: structures. Mm. Okay.
1: You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic theology show today. We are happy to have Archbishop Cordeleon from San Francisco, uh, with us to discuss Catholic education, as well as kind of the engagement of. Catholics, uh, in contemporary society. So your excellency, thanks so much for being on the show. You're welcome. So as we kind of shift gears, before we dive into some difficult questions about um, abortion, um, other kind of issues that are kind of somewhat almost ripping apart aspects of contemporary society, such deep misunderstandings often, conflicts, uh, I wanted to maybe just step back for a minute and I find as a teacher, right and I'm obviously you are a teacher, right as uh, the teachers, as our as our vicar of Christ, right. a bishop in our midst, that this need both to be honest and frank about the problems while still encouraging people, encouraging students, encouraging the faithful so that they really feel encouraged, that their hearts feel stronger. And I love this verse from Philippians chapter 3. 13 and 14, where um, Paul, who is actually in prison at this time, right, these are known as the captivity epistles, right? He's in prison. He's in a house arrest, but he's in prison basically by Rome, a power that is, earth from an earthly perspective, much greater than he is and will take his life. But he says this, right? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And I just love that, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead toward the goal of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So could you maybe, how how do you find it's helpful or what do you find is effective maybe in trying to communicate that sense of hope Forgetting what lies behind, straining towards what lies ahead, which is really right, our union with God in Jesus Christ in heaven. Mm-hmm. That that's really what gives us and gives me a sense of joy and peace. Right? I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. You know, <laughs> this idea. So
0: Yes. Very uh, timely passage. I've been thinking lately about how, in so many ways, it seems we've taken our eyes off of Christ, off of the prize. There's so much self uh, referentiality nowadays why he's talking about ourself as even this phrase we are the body of christ well saint paul actually says we are one body in christ we are <clears throat> in and under christ the head that's the full body you No, know? yeah. and uh, so much talk about us you know as a church as a community so many songs that are sung at mass are all about celebrating the community right that's taken our eyes off of Christ. Mm-hmm. We need to keep our vision fixed. If our vision is fixed on him, that will give us hope and encouragement, even in the most stressful, That I just spoke about the situation of St. Paul then, um, that he, he could persevere, encouraged, because li- like you said it so well, he knows who holds the future. Yeah. And, and if his life is oriented toward him, his life is moving in that direction. The culture has become so toxic now uh, so hostile to the b- even basic values we have. Even the practice of the faith when it comes to worship now, we, we experience that during the COVID lockdowns, right? The suppression of worship and other activities we're able to, at least in some states such as my own. I think we need to form intentional communities such as Ave Maria University and other good uh, Catholic colleges and universities. And people I think are naturally forming these sort of intentional communities where they share the same faith and they can love in a Christian way and that bolsters their hope. But not in a monastic sense of withdrawing from the world, but helping us, strengthening us to be not of the world while in the world so we can hold out that hope to others who may be lost. And there are some, yeah, some people are hostile, other people are just lost and Maybe censor must be a better way, but they don't have anyone to guide them there, so to be that light to people. So I think sort of this, these intentional communities that can strengthen us then go forth. This is the, the bi-directional movement of Scripture, right? Israel is a people set apart, but to be a light to the Gentiles. The gospel begins with an invitation, come follow me, and it ends with the commission, go ye therefore And proclaim the gospel to all nations so this is the the devil movement of the christian life but we need a community with which we can withdraw be a people set apart so we can also be a people sent forth
1: yeah that's fascinating you talk about this eclipse of christ uh frank Sheed, who was a great uh, actually english but a a great kind of catholic theologian apologist evangelist uh, did a lot of different things but one of his last books that i think he wrote in the 70s was called christ in Eclipse. And basically in just a lot of different areas he saw that we you know, kind of taken our eyes off Christ. And Eve Congar, another uh, very scholarly theologian who had a huge influence really on some of the conciliar documents of the Second Vatican Council, at some point, I can't remember the Latin for it, but he says basically that we there's a tendency, and he wrote this in this 50 years ago, but he said there's a tendency today in, I think both in the liturgy and in the church, to act kind of as if Christ has not been given
0: mm-hmm.
1: where we carry on the church kind of as a sociological reality without the defining mystery of the death and resurrection mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Christ in, you know, as is ascended into heaven and the hope that he will come and he alone will come and set things right. Uh, so i just thought that's really it, it is such a it's so obvious in a way and yet i think because the church is also such a beautiful incarnate reality that also does all these things within society and works to improve society it can be easy to take our eyes off mm-hmm.
0: of the prize so this is what the all of the recent posts have been warning us about john paul benedict pope francis about the church becoming just another ngo um We're not an NGO. We do a lot of good in the world. Mm -hmm. We're the leading provider of social services, private provider of social services. But it's all about with the with the love of Christ. So, um, so it it fits right in exactly what the popes have been warning us about. Wow.
1: So let's maybe shift a little bit to when we look at then some of the issues, the moral issues of our day and societal issues of our day that often where we might conflict with our neighbors, where some of our beliefs kind of are counter-cultural, counter-societal. Certainly I think abortion is one of those. So what would you say to those people who think that the church makes too much out of abortion uh, and that this is really just one among many different, you know, moral, you know, options within a complex world. And, you know, the church shouldn't be so hung up on this.
0: There's so much to say about that. <laughs> uh, first of all, there's the brutal evil that abortion is people have to stop and think about what really happens in an abortion we're too polite to talk about it but it's it's brutally evil despicably evil when you think about what actually happens in an abortion even in these these med- these medical abortions i mean what happens afterwards so i don't want to go there but <laughs> people can in yeah. their own mind. so first yeah. that sort of to sensitize people to the degree of evil that this is And then on a more philosophical basis, uh, we're talking about a basic right to life. That's the first right. If there's no right to just even be, how can you say there's any other rights after that? Then we get into what our founding fathers of our country were trying to protect us against, and the church keeps reminding us of, that our rights don't come from the state. There are, our, our fundamental rights come from God. And if we take away the right to be, then that everything else is up to the state. What to get, give or take away our rights? And so it, it undermines any kind of basic sense of of human dignity, of uh, kind of equal dignity of everyone in society. And we have what we have is powerful people deciding whether or not weaker weaker people can live and be a part of the human community or not. And We think that we, I would have hoped we'd learned that lesson from all those brutal, we said earlier, atheistic regimes of the 20th century that that was doing that. So we have to, uh, this is the other thing. So it's it's fundamental in the sense of on kind of a philosophical principled basis. It's fundamental because of the degree of the evil that actually happens and uh, because it strikes right in the heart of the family. We're getting in between a mother and a child in the mother's womb. So it's, it's it's very deep. So it's, it is it is unique in that sense. And, and we know this. It's a basic principle that to, to take an innocent human life is always wrong. It is an intrinsic evil. So I would try to help them. I mean, those are like arguments to use yeah, or reusing yeah, yeah. reason, which often doesn't work anymore these days. But the other way is to have women tell their stories. So I... I work with a pro-life outreach organization that got the idea that to um, help change the conversation to just create a safe space where people can tell and people, not just the mothers, but there's a whole network of relationships. This is a great insight. They had her whole network of relationships is affected by that one abortion. Well, I won't call it a decision too often. Women Mm -hmm. have said, I felt like I had no choice, Um, but that one, one event, so they can go there and tell their. Because this is another thing. Women are not allowed to talk about it. You know, she's not supposed to feel guilty, and uh, the, the, you know there's some of these women who shout their abortion. So if she is, um, she's like just shut down. So that's why, who offers her healing? The church does. When she finally is needs can't take it anymore, she'll turn to the church. She won't turn to Planned Parenthood. They're not going to help her with that. So this organization created its this online. Well, first they wrote them out they gave me a box with the stories in them. And I, my prayer time, I would take one out every once in a while and read it. Now now it's an online resource. So without, and they don't take any, officially take any position on it because they want it to be a place where people can tell their story without being judged. But all you have to do is read the stories. It just tears your heart. I had to hide them in a box and it actually was a shoebox in my little private chapel. And I just thought, how much heartbreak is there? How much evil is there? How many people are wounded for life in that box? All you have to do is hear the stories and you know how bad it really is.
1: Yeah, and that's so helpful for you to kind of put it in that larger context because I think that's also what the church brings is not only clarity of teaching about moral issues, but also clarity of God's mercy. Because when I look at the world, I don't see a forgiving world. Mm The society doesn't want to forgive me. Nature doesn't forgive me, right? We live in Florida. If you walk too close to the water, the <laughs> alligators aren't forgiving. You know, they, if you you have a little poodle. You got to okay. be careful yes. down here. Um, and, but what I mean by this is the nature's really not forgiving. The universe is not forgiving. The cosmos isn't forgiving. Society's not forgiving. Frankly, I'm not very forgiving, right? And yet at the heart of God's revelation in the Old Testament and then proclaimed in the New and enacted in the New is God's mercy. And so this idea that the church then can help to bind up the wounds of the wounded and to forgive the sins of the sinful, right? Mine first. Right. I'm yes. I'm 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 among the first, as Paul would say, right? He's the first. He's the worst of the sinners, because he's the one he knows the most. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's also one of those things where you know that i don't know just putting it back in that context that uh, there certainly are some things that i think all of us have done or at least probably wanted to do of which we are ashamed mm-hmm. and where do we have that shame and sin taken away right genuinely taken away you know not just saying you feel sh- you felt bad over things over which you had no control like yes over you know you, f- you felt bad because your parents were fighting when you were a kid or something like that you know okay well that's appropriate say look hey you weren't guilty of that but these are things over which no you 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 did something wrong you hurt somebody
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um where do you find genuine healing and mercy and i think ultimately that is from you know the the church and i think it's a great message to be able to communicate that with respect to i think issues that can be very painful and for a lot of people um, hard to see you know um so I, i really appreciate that um now You've of course also attracted uh, attention over the you know past several years in being willing to speak about help catechize uh, the idea that we the church has a stake in kind of public pu- figures, political figures who you know who kind of advance this abortion agenda. So, how would you explain that? Why is that appropriate? That, even though, you know, kind of, I don't know how to put it, belongs to the government to figure out the policies on what to do. Why is this a principle? And maybe are there examples when the church has either spoken out well or not well about these kind of moral principles?
0: Yes. um, If people. Uh, so many people see things just politically nowadays. So if you look at it politically, this is this is your issue. Well, what about someone else's issue? But again, the, because it's it is preeminent because it's destruction of innocent human life. So where the church hasn't and it has, uh, well, we can think of the two great fights for human dignity in the middle of the eighteenth century and the middle of the nineteenth century: slavery. So the church wasn't very outspoken then wasn't a leader in the abolitionist movement Catholics were no kind of new immigrants and the church didn't have much, much clout in society anyway. And, you know, bishops, some priests, religious uh, institutions o- actually owned slaves. So that's where we, even though even though the popes all condemned condemned slavery when it started again with the discovery of the the new parts of the world newly discovered parts of the world by the europeans um despite that it was kind of accepted so we see now we feel some shame that church leaders who should have known better went along with what was in mainstream society Versus the middle of the 20th century with the struggle for civil rights a hundred years later, that of course was led by faith leaders, including Catholic faith leaders. So my pastoral letter, I gave the example of Archbishop Rummel in, in New Orleans, who was um, trying to desegregate the Catholic schools in the archdiocese. And there were three prominent Catholics in public life who were uh, outspokenly opposing him. And he actually excommunicated them for that. So uh, sometimes that kind of action is needed, which, in itself is catechetical because it has to always be pastoral and not political it has to always look the supreme good is the salvation of souls it always has to be looking for that as the supreme goal which why it has to be done pastorally with the kind of a spiritual approach but sometimes those actions are necessary which also help clarify church teaching in these areas so there have been times. The church has been on both sides of those issues. But, of course, by the mid-20th century, the church was much more prominent in society, was more respected, and uh, was able to effectively join arms with other faith leaders in that effort for civil rights.
1: That's really that's a really powerful story. That's neat. I think a lot of people probably don't know the story of, uh, was that Archbishop, what was his name again? Archb- R- Rummel. Archbishop Rommel in yeah, New Orleans. In New Orleans, 1962.
0: Wow. And we don't think about, yeah, that, well, they, they should have tried to come up with some kind of a compromise, you know? Mm-hmm. Or there was a group called the American Party in the mid-19th century that was trying to find a compromise position on slavery. Mm-hmm. Would we think that acceptable, a compromise Mm -hmm. position on slavery? Mm -hmm. So how can you have a compromise position on killing babies in their mother's Mm -hmm. wombs? And if you don't stop it, it just keeps getting worse. And now the push is to legalize up to the day of birth. It's going to move beyond that if we allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. So at some point, action has to be taken.
1: Wow. Well, that's a a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Maybe just kind of shifting gears a little bit in terms of how we, again, kind of interact uh, with things. Would you say just maybe, yeah, I I know, and I think, I don't remember which of your writings or or talks, but you uh, talk about Thomas More, right? St. Thomas More, who I think it is in um, the play about Thomas More, a man for all seasons. I think Robert Bolt's one where he says something like, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And uh, you've quoted that a couple times. And so could you say a little bit about how Thomas More maybe inspires you and how you think Thomas More can inspire, you know, other, you know, uh, faithful Catholics and maybe even, you know, not faithful Catholics who might <laughs> become inspired by, uh, Thomas More's fidelity.
0: Thomas More and his counterpart, John Fisher too, since he was a Bishop. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so I think about both of them, how, how lonely it must've been to be the only one yeah. opposing this and to know the, being detained and in, in a prison back back at that time, what that must have been like, and knowing they were facing the prospect of death by beheading, so the courage is just uh, remarkable. I think we become just too weak now, and things are being seen as courageous that are don't come near the courage of Thomas More and John Fisher, and so many other heroes of mine in the in the twentieth century. Those great. Catholic leaders at the time of the the Nazis and and the Soviet uh, Republic who were defying, you know, the, the regime, you know, uh, von Gallen in, in in Germany, the Nazis, you know, Minzenti and Stepanak, all these great leaders. Walter Chizik is another hero yeah. of mine. His yeah. story is so inspiring. All they suffered and the courage and st- stamina physical as well as spiritual stamina that they had to withstand that it's we look rather paltry nowadays <laughs> even something that's considered courageous compared to them so they've always been these heroes a great inspiration to me and remind me about the courage we are called to have and that we can do it even even in the midst of feeling lonely to know that if a good word keep your eyes fixed on christ and move forward toward him yeah and there's that great line the peace that only he can give
1: yep and there's a great line from hebrews right we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses yes. and you were talking about communion earlier and we were talking about how it's not just our immediate social environment but it's with god but of course it's also with the whole yes. saints in the church right the yes. communion of saints so this sense in which we can be we can think of thomas more as a friend as a father yes. Yes. Uh, and not just like it, it's kind of the beauty it's not like achilles so to speak who was kind of a demigod mm-hmm. and better than we could ever be yes but actually this is a this is a friend i mean holier than we are but one who was human mm-hmm. who was fearful whose uh family didn't agree with him but 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 he was faithful and um you know and he can he can be our friend and he can pray for us uh, so that's really beautiful so as, as we're closing our time i'd like to ask you kind of three questions that i like to ask all my guests so Um, What's a book you've been reading?
0: Oh, um, right now I'm reading Cardinal Sara's Eternity, his his latest book on his Mm -hmm. um, reflections about the priesthood and spiritual fatherhood.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, What's that called again?
0: Eternity. I think it's Eternity or For Eternity.
1: Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And that's Cardinal? Uh, Cardinal Robert Sara. Robert Sara. That's beautiful. And uh, so also, in terms of trying to make theology both what we think about God matters, but also we have to like incorporate it and live it out. Could you maybe mention one practice on it? Obviously, you know, as a, as a, as a priest and a bishop, I'm sure you have many. Um, but just one practice that you do on a daily basis that helps you kind of recover that sense of meaning, wonder purpose, that sacramental imagination and all of these different elements.
0: Uh, that's an inspiration from uh, fulton sheen the daily holy hour before the blessed sacrament mm. and to never miss that even yeah. if you're groggy, you have to get up super early like i did when i flew here yesterday and mm. you're groggy the uh, consistency is what matters just like in a marriage i would think <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's yes, consistency yes. that matters mm. and dependability with that consistent, and to remember that prayer is not something we do again we could take take that kind of uh, utilitarian view what am I going to get out of this hour of prayer? I wanna have a spiritual experience. No, it's not that. It's disposing ourselves to let God do what God intends to do in that hour. And often it might not be much, but over time, just like with physical conditioning, we get into better spiritual condition and we develop certain habits, certain virtues and instincts and God uses that time to help get us to a better place. So I'd say if there would to define one practice, it'd be that. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a great
1: encouragement. And so last question, is there some belief that you kind of held about God at some point in your life that you discovered through your theological study and through the riches of the Catholic faith was false? And right that by kind of really discovering kind of the truth about God, I gained a a better understanding of of who God
0: is and and who you are. I can't, no, I can't say I ever discovered that I had a false idea about God, but one thing that came into clearer light for me when I was doing my theology studies in the seminary is, well, it's Pope Benedict's title of his encyclical from the first letter of St. John, God is love. And that if we if that's the starting point that God is love, then everything kind of falls after that, and it all makes sense after that. Um, so perfect line with the gospel for today the two great commandments right everything hinges on that love of god and love of neighbor so i'd say that helped me to my theology studies helped me to appreciate that better
1: well thank you very much uh, your excellency uh, again uh, we've had archbishop cordeleon uh, archbishop of san francisco on the catholic theology show today uh, people who are interested in learning more by the way uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it today but um uh, archbishop uh, cordeleon also is a uh, sponsoring a Benedict the 16th Institute for sacred music and divine worship that uh, you know some people might want to check out and again thank you very much for being on our you're show Welcome.
0: and people can uh, yeah we didn't have time to talk about it but BenedictInstitute.org, and they can follow the activity of the institute there benedict institute.org thank you very much you're excellent thank you
1: thank you so much for joining us for this podcast if you like this episode please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you
0: next time on The Catholic Theology Show.